You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. The topic of this lecture is the ethics of research with a particular focus on research involving human subjects. Research is an important component for the advancement of science and for the advancement of medicine. The press to do research arises out of the eros, the drive to know, and the press to advance medicine arises out of the desire to heal. The drive to know and the desire to heal are to be acknowledged as gifts of God so that human beings who are created in the image and likeness of God may exercise creative stewardship in the created world. Both the desire to know and the drive to heal are to be appropriately directed to human flourishing as the proper end of each. The means to accomplish the end must also be instances of human flourishing. However, research, which requires the participation of human subjects, must respect the dignity of the human subject, a dignity that has its source in the fact that human beings are created in God's image and in the acknowledgement that human beings are ends in themselves. This lecture will address the issue of research ethics involving human subjects, first by indicating the sources of danger inherent in research projects, second by citing two concrete historical instances of abuse of human subjects in research, Third, by presenting some of the efforts to provide guidelines for researchers. And fourth, by examining an example of the ongoing efforts in the United States to guide and regulate research. And finally, by reflecting on the underlying principles operative in ongoing medical research in order to present some conclusions. The acknowledgement of the good of the advancement of science and the good of the attainment of medicine does not mean that the pursuit of these goals is unproblematic. A significant problem is present in the tendency of scientists and physician scientists to press and to defend their research as a value-free pursuit, a pure pursuit of knowledge without the presence of any bias. The study of the history of research involving human subjects, however, reveals that this value-free claim cannot stand and that there have been instances of egregious abuses of human subjects in research. It has often enough been the case that the research imperative and the healing imperative are so strong that they drive the scientist researcher and the physician researcher past the appropriate limits of research. It is often the case also that the cultural bias under which the researcher operates is so distorted that evil rather than good is the result. This lecture will present some examples of the abuse of human subjects in research. The examples will be drawn from the United States first and then from Nazi Germany. It will then present the efforts to regulate the work of scientific and research communities through the creation of codes to inform and to guide their practices. The first example of research abuse to be examined, because it appears chronologically earlier than the Nazi research project, is the Tuskegee syphilis study. The syphilis study was begun in 1932 as a project of the United States Public Health Service. 
It is important to note at the time that the study was begun, the United States, and for that matter, the rest of the world, had articulated no formal position or guidelines on human experimentation. The scientific purposes of the Tuskegee study were to study the natural course of syphilis in the progression from onset of symptoms through latency to death in black males. The social purpose of the study was to observe how the disease affected the men in their ordinary lives. The site of the study was Macon County, Alabama. There were 600 men initially involved in the study. 400 of the men had been diagnosed with syphilis. The other 200 men were uninfected, and they were to serve as controls. The men who were involved in the research were not informed that they were participants in a research project. They were told that they were ill and that the public health services would give them care, and this care would even extend to their death. That is, public health services would provide for their funeral expenses. The men were, as a matter of fact, given no effective medication. In 1936, the first results of the study were published. Publications of the results continued regularly every four to six years through the 60s. In 1969, the Center for Disease Control, through one of its committees, made the decision to continue the studies. And the experimental studies continued until 1972, when the national press published accounts of the study. Only then, in the midst of a public outcry, did the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare order the experiment halted. Now, there are two significant occurrences in the 40 years from the commencement of the study until it was halted. One is the discovery of the effectiveness of penicillin in the treatment of syphilis and its ready availability after World War II. The other is the framing and the publication of the Nuremberg Code in 1946 at the trial of the physicians. The American justice who presided over the military tribunal worked on the preparation of the code. Two American physicians, Dr. Andrew Ivey and Dr. Leo Alexander, assisted in the preparation of the code. Although there is some disagreement between the two physicians regarding the role of each in the drafting of the code, there is enough independent corroborating evidence to show that each of them made a significant contribution to the framing of the code. In the immediate wake of the trial, the House of Delegates of the American Medical Association formally approved and adopted the principles of the Nuremberg Code. And in 1953, when the National Institutes of Health opened the Institute's clinic, it put into place a policy requiring the voluntary agreement based on informed understanding for all of its research subjects. Neither the discovery of penicillin, nor the articulation of the principles of the Nuremberg Code, nor the adoption of the principles of the code by various regulating bodies in medicine and science was sufficient to stop the experiment and to treat the infected men. The men in the Tuskegee study were denied in an explicit decision, penicillin. The application of the principles of the code never became an issue. The cultural bias, which was fed by social Darwinism, supported by anthropologists, ethnologists, and biologists, viewed the American Negro as a primitive race doomed to disease, vice, crime, and inevitable early extinction. This assessment, combined with the research imperative, 
to press for the completion of the study, which required post-mortem examination. The research efforts in Germany have been chronicled since the end of World War II. The accounting of the violation of human dignity in research and medical research appeared as early as 1949 with the publication by Dr. Leo Alexander of his observation of the Nuremberg Trial of Physicians. His paper, Medical Science Under Dictatorship, appeared in the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine. A more recent and more expansive account by Robert J. Lifton appeared in his book, The Nazi Doctors, Medical Killing and the Psychology of Genocide. This was published in 1986. While the mass experimentation projects that were exercised by the Nazis between 1939 and 1945 are comparatively well-known, less well-known are the research projects undertaken for the advancement of science and the advancement of medicine. The following are two examples of the research imperative. Dr. Julius Hallervorden, renowned German neuropathologist who was engaged in the study of diseases of the brain, was the glad recipient of materials, the brains of those who had been killed in the camps, for the advancement of his studies. He reported to Dr. Alexander, there was wonderful material among those brains, beautiful mental defectives, malformations, and early infantile diseases. I accepted those brains, of course. Where they came from and how they came to me was really none of my business. Dr. August Hurt, professor of anatomy at the University of Strasbourg, enlisted the help of camp officials in the procurement of specimens for the development of his collection of skeletons. He preserved them and he used them in his anthropological work. The medical therapeutic imperative in Nazi Germany was tied to the risks encountered by military and the efforts to ameliorate those harms. Two examples will suffice. In attempts to develop coagulants to stem hemorrhage on the battlefield, experimental coagulants were tested on live and conscious prisoners whose limbs were amputated in order to measure the differences in coagulation time. The concern for shock from exposure to the cold by pilots who suffered immersion in the North Sea prompted a team of physicians headed by Dr. Sigmund Rascher to subject prisoners to exposure to brutal cold, sometimes in ice vats, in order to measure the effects of the cold. In reaction to the atrocities revealed at the Nuremberg trial, the code was developed. The code lists 10 principles to guide research involving human subjects. The most important elements in the code are the following. The code requires the voluntary consent of the research subject. The code explicitly defines what it means by voluntary consent. It says, the person involved should have the legal capacity to give consent should be so situated as to be able to exercise free power of choice without the intervention of any element of force, fraud, deceit, duress, overreaching, or other ulterior form of constraint or coercion, and should have sufficient knowledge and comprehension of the elements of the subject matter involved as to enable him to make an understanding and enlightened decision. The three most important elements of informed consent, freedom, voluntariness, and knowledge are present here. Among the other significant components of the code are that it is the duty of the researcher to make sure 
to make certain that the appropriate consent is in place. And furthermore, this duty is not one that the researcher may delegate to anyone else. The research is required to have as its goal fruitful results for the good of society, unprocurable by other means or methods of study. The research must be necessary and it cannot be random in design. The design of the research in order to increase the probability of useful results in order to protect human subjects requires that it be based on the result of animal studies and a knowledge of the history of the disease or other problem under study. A most important ratio of degree of harm to degree of knowledge of the research subject is found in the Nuremberg Code requirement that no experiment should be conducted where there is an a priori reason to believe that death or disabling injury will occur, except perhaps in those experiments where the experimental physicians also serve as subjects. If the continuation of the experiment is likely to bring harm to the research subject, the experiment must be immediately terminated. Now, the Nuremberg Code is not law, and it does not have the power of law. Nonetheless, it exercises powerful influence as an ideal. The limitations of the Nuremberg Code became almost immediately evident to the scientific and medical community. There is no distinction in the Nuremberg Code between research for the sake of the advancement of knowledge and medical research combined with medical care, that is, research to advance therapy for a particular patient. The Nuremberg Code attends the researcher-subject relationship, but not the physician-patient relationship. The World Medical Association published the Declaration of Helsinki to provide the needed expansion. Of particular interest in the Declaration of Helsinki is its affirmation of the good of the individual over the interest of society in research. The Declaration says, in medical research on human subjects, considerations related to the well-being of the human subject should take precedence over the interest of society and of science. The Declaration is particularly sensitive to vulnerable populations and list some of those for whom special care should be taken in a research situation. Among the vulnerable populations that it lists are those who are economically and medically disadvantaged, those who are incapable of consent, those whose consent may be from the result of distress, those who will not personally benefit from the research, and those for whom research is combined with care. The Declaration moves away from the strict informed consent requirements of the Nuremberg Code. It allows the participation or the use of research subjects who are incapable of informed consent, such as those who are legally incompetent, whether physically or mentally, and also legally incompetent minors. The Declaration substitutes for the informed consent of the participants the informed consent of the legal representative of the incompetent, with the added limitation that the research must be necessary to promote the health of the population represented in the subject, and that the research cannot be performed on legally competent persons. Another significant development is the addition of an assent requirement on the part of children 
and on the part of other incompetent persons for participation in any research project. The assent requirement carries with it an appropriate understanding that is appropriate to the age of the subject and an expressed willingness that does not reach the high standard of informed consent. Assent is understood to be an act of agreement which takes into account the experience and the level of understanding of the incompetent person. In articulating the principles for medical research combined with medical care, the declaration begins with the requirement that the protocol have potential value, therapeutic or diagnostic or prophylactic for the patient, and then progresses to the permissibility within the scope of other relevant guidelines for the use of new and unproven procedures for whom proven procedures are ineffective. To return to the United States and its efforts to guide research, in 1973, after the public outcry to the revelation of the Tuskegee study, the United States Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, now the Department of Health and Human Services, proposed the first set of regulations to protect human subjects in behavioral and biomedical research. The guidelines were published in 1974 as the Code of Federal Regulations, Title 45, Public Welfare, and Part 46, Protection of Human Subjects. In 1979, the Belmont Report was published. The Belmont Report sets out an ethical framework as the basis of regulation. The framework lists as important principles respect for persons, beneficence, and non-maleficence, and distributive justice. It provides guidelines for informed consent, assessment of risks and benefits, and the selection of subjects. In 1983, the Code of Federal Regulations specifically addressed the issue of research with children and added a section to protect the interests of children. The progression of science and medicine combined with the need for testing the products of its research and the occasional revelation of yet more abuses and missteps requires regular oversight of research by regulatory agencies and the refinement of the principles and regulations. Of course, no set of regulations is needed for the reputable, responsible scientist, and no set of regulations is sufficient for the unscrupulous scientist. The Council of International Organizations of Medical Science has taken up the task of speaking for and to the international community. The progression of its documents may be seen in the development of guidelines for research involving subjects in underdeveloped communities and countries. In the United States, the Department of Health and Human Services, under the direction of its secretary, has the responsibility for the maintenance and development of its regulations. The power of the Department of Health and Human Services derives mainly from the funding it provides or the funding it refuses. The consideration of the current set of regulations in the Code of Federal Regulations for research projects that involve children is illustrative of the advances since the Nuremberg Code. There are four guidelines, 46, 404, 46, 405, 46, 406, and 46, 407, which require as the research progresses from decreasing benefit to the child an increasing degree of regulation. Regulation 404 
addresses research not involving greater than minimal risk to the patient and a direct benefit to the child. Regulation 405 addresses research involving greater than minimal risk to the patient and a direct benefit to the child. Regulation 406 addresses research that is likely to yield generalizable knowledge about the patient's condition or disorder, but does not generally benefit the patient. Regulation 407 addresses research not otherwise approvable under 404, 405, or 406, but which presents an opportunity to understand, to prevent, or to alleviate a serious problem affecting the health or welfare of children. Regulation 404 and 405 are considered therapeutic because each of them poses a direct benefit to the child with respectfully either minimal or a favorable benefit-risk ratio. Regulations 406 and 407 are considered non-therapeutic because while they offer the possibility of an increase in knowledge or an increase in the understanding of disease, they offer no direct benefit to the child. To be in compliance with the federal code, all four types of research require review and approval by the Institutional Review Board of the institution, and all four require the assent of the child and the consent of a parent. Regulation 406 and 407 require consent by both parents if two parents are available. Regulation 407 requires approval by the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, who is also required to consult with a panel of representative experts, and who is required, furthermore, to provide the opportunity for public review. In addition, Regulation 407 requires that the research be in accord with sound ethical principles and sound ethical practices. The participation of human beings in research that benefits either themselves or others or that advances knowledge or understanding of human development or knowledge of human existence or of human illness is a morally permissible good, provided that respect for human dignity and respect for the gift of life are maintained. Participation in research that benefits oneself is in accord with the natural law precept to preserve human life. Participation in research which benefits others is a sign of one's membership in the human community and a sign of one's solidarity with that community. Participation in research which advances knowledge is in itself a contribution to the progression of science. And that satisfies the third of the specific precepts of natural law. Participation in research is justified, but limited by the application of the principle of totality, which allows the use of the part for the good of the whole. This principle requires the distinction between a physical organism and a moral organism with a consequent limitation on activities. The individual person may consent to participate in research, which serves to benefit the personal life of that person, even to the degree that the research may require the use of a part, or if the part is diseased, the destruction of that part that is not required for the good of the whole person. The individual person may participate in research 
which benefits the community, but only to a limited degree. That is, the relationship of the person to the community as part to whole, and in an application of the principle of totality, is limited to the use of the activities, not the use of the life of the person. Respect for human dignity requires careful attendance to the provision of informed consent. The greater the risks attended on the research and the more diminished the benefits for the patient's subject, the more stringent are the requirements for informed consent. These requirements are knowledge, voluntariness, and freedom. There is, of course, a limit which cannot be traversed. The following minimal conditions are required. Under no circumstances may the life of a human being be sacrificed for the good of research. This is a violation of the principle of totality as that principle applies to moral organisms. Under no circumstance may research be carried out on a human subject without the assent and the consent provisions properly in place. Remember, consent requires voluntariness, knowledge, and freedom. Assent is a diminished kind of assent for people whose capacity is diminished to respond. Assent requires sufficient knowledge and willingness appropriate to the experience and life of the person giving assent. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.